0: It was an exciting day for our young family. Our kids were in their late adolescent, early teen years. We had our two cousins with us, and we had gone to SeaWorld in San Diego. The kids, and especially our son Austin, was excited to ride a new ride at SeaWorld called Journey to Atlantis. So he was very focused guiding us and directing us, pushing us this way and that, until finally we were at the beginning of the line. You know the kind of line I'm talking about. It's a very deceptive line. It's a serpentine line. It snakes itself here and over there and in the other direction so that you think you're almost there and have no realization that you're going to spend another week in that part of the line So we slowly but surely made our way up finally to the entrance to the ride, and it was there at the entrance that we saw the sign. We should have predicted it. The sign is always there at these rides. Hadn't crossed our minds, hadn't thought it through carefully. After all that time, there was the sign. The sign was in the form of a wooden cutout of a cartoon figure who had a hand extended something like this and had a sign on his chest that read, must be at least this tall to ride the ride. Well, we parents made it through with no problem. Austin was home free. Miranda stretched out to her elegant young self. She went in. Karina got through, and then came Natalia. Natalia, the last of the bunch, the runt of the litter. There she stood looking at the sign. It was immediately clear to me she wasn't going to make it. She got up there. She stood as tall as she could. She even tried to sneak in some tiptoes. The man said, no, 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 no! wait, wait a minute. Let's see if you're under. The employee looked at her and he said, I'm really sorry. Well, her face crinkled into tears. And my wife and her sister said, just a minute. We'll take care of this. And they turned around where nobody could see, and they did something. And when they turned back around, they brought her back to the sign. She had what I can best describe as a palm tree sprouting out of the top of her head. (laughs) They had gathered all that hair up. They had a little scrunchie, and they put it around, and there was that tree. And she walked in, and bam, it hit the sign. The employee looked at that and said, no, no, no. But she touched the sign. He looked at my wife and her sister and decided he knew when to call it a day. And he said, okay, and we went through. About the time we entered the ride, I could hear the cries of the condemned, those who were already on the ride, and I thought, we should have read the sign, we should have paid attention to the sign." We got up. It was one of these floating rides. You get into what appears to be a hollowed-out log. You sit astride the bench. There are people spread out behind you. Austin was there with me and and right close to me, and we got in. They got in behind us, and we started floating down the river, unaware of our impending doom. (laughs) I had that thought running through my mind. Should have paid attention to the sign. We finally came to this very steep incline. There was some jerking until we engaged, and then we started up, clickety-clack, up the incline. And we finally paused at the very top. I'm sure they do this intentionally. They have you pause and teeter on the brink, just giving you one final chance to confess your sins and (laughs) make sure all is right with God. And then we started to go over, and my son said, Dad. And I was like, hey, it's every man for himself. (laughs) I could already hear Natalia in the back scream. We hadn't even gone over the edge yet, screaming at the top of her voice. And I thought, should have read the sign. Should have paid attention to the sign. And then we went over, and the world dropped out from under us. And we dropped for 500 feet, (laughs) it felt. Smashing into the water, water everywhere. And staggered away from that ride. Not much worse for the wear. But I just kept thinking back to her screams and thinking, should have paid attention to the sign. I suppose that's why when Jesus erects a sign, right at the beginning of the pathway, I'm particularly attentive to thinking, better read the sign. He erects that sign in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. But we have to pay attention to what has come before this. If you have the time, sometime read through those chapters before that in Luke, including Luke, chapter 9. Just read through them and underline every time you come across the word crowd or crowds, you'll underline many times. Because in the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus' ministry builds to this point in time, the crowds are flocking to hear Him. It's the way it always is when there's something exciting happening. A celebrity shows up, somebody of repute appears, and immediately everybody gravitates. Like magnets, they're drawn to that person. I saw it coming out of Texas Stadium years ago. Years ago, I was there with some friends. We went to watch the Cowboys play. (laughs) Sadly, that day to watch them lose. But (laughs) as we came out of the stadium, like the children of Israel, moving toward the promised land, this massive group of people heading toward the parking lots. But suddenly within them, I saw a group that was even more intense, pressed together. And I thought, somebody's there. Who's there? What's happening there? My friends and I, we're the curious type, so we raced over there to see what it was. And it was only because there was a brief break in the crowd that we saw him in all of his epic glory, striding along with a full mink coat, striding along with bangles and jangles, headed toward the limo that waited there. There he was, Mr. T, in all of his glory and everybody said, there he is, and they raced to see him. Crowds. It's all through this part of Luke's gospel. The crowds came. The crowds listened. The crowds pressed in upon him. The crowds wanted a piece of him. It's the time when when his ministry is climbing. It's the exciting time at church. People are packed in. We can't wait for the service. Our new preacher our new preacher is amazing. Everything is happening, and we're saying, this is it, the blessing of God has rested upon us. That's what's happening in Luke at this point in time. Then it is that Jesus plants a sign. Plants a sign in the ground. Wants to make certain that those who are coming understand. Luke 9, verse 23, said this. Then he said to them, All. All. All those people. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? The sign. For any disciple, for any would-be follower to read, whoever, it says, wants to be my disciple, must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow. It strikes me that because of the activity of Jesus' ministry at this point in time, that it's a sign that ought to be read not only by would-be disciples, but by would-be pastors. Jesus is deeply involved in ministry at this point in time. It's successful ministry insofar as we would judge it, from a human perspective, and it is then that he plants the sign. Read the sign. There are many things that Jesus said that I love, that draw me toward him. Whoever is burdened and heavy laden, come. I will give you rest, and I come. Whoever believes understand that god's love for you is so rich that he has provided me to save the world and i come the one who comes to me i will never reject and i come blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of god and i come there are so many things jesus spoke jesus uttered that draw me that compel me to respond This hasn't been one of them over the years. This has not been the one that I have gravitated toward, the one that I memorized and treasured in my heart. But we must read it. Because to fail to read it and to heed it is to domesticate Jesus. To tame him. To say, no, he's... He's all good. He's he's all kind. He's all love. It's all cotton candy and fluffy clouds. That's what it is to follow Jesus. And he says, whoever, as Billy Graham one time put it, take up your instrument of torture, your method of execution, and come after me. And suddenly I am repelled. I want to domesticate him, to tame him, to say, Jesus, don't say that kind of stuff. We're already struggling with people entering ministry. We're losing young people. Don't say that. You'll drive them further out the door. Tell them this is the place to come. You can make your name. You can make your fame. You can make your living. You can build a church. You can plant it. You too can be a mega church pastor. Don't say that stuff, Jesus. It'll drive them away. And yet, unapologetically, he plants the sign in the earth in the midst of the crowds and says, please understand what it will mean to follow me. Let me be clear. You cannot tame me. It reminds me. Reminds me of that story out of the Chronicles of Narnia penned by C.S. Lewis. Jill is there. She is dying of thirst, looking for a place to slake her thirst. She has finally found the most pure stream of living water, a fountain bubbling up out of the earth. She is ready to slake her thirst, but right there at the side is the lion. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know that Aslan, the lion, is the Christ figure. And Jill looks at the water and is drawn toward it, but sees the lion and is repelled. And she says to the lion, Could you please move? And all she gets is a low growl. She says, I'm so thirsty. And the lion says, Then drink. But please, I'm afraid of you. Do you swallow little girls? And the lion says, I have swallowed little girls and little boys and men and women and kings and kingdoms. I've swallowed them all. Well, then, can you please move? I will not move. But I need water. Then drink. And she is there caught on the horns of that dilemma. What do I do? Because the lion says to her, I am good but I am not safe. That's the sign. I am good, he says to you, but I am not safe. Don't make that mistake. Don't believe that if I enter this pathway, all will be roses and petals. He is good, but not safe. We have tried to make him safe. Tried to domesticate him. Tried to tame him. Jesus, don't say those things. Or or at least I'll preach on the other passages. There may be a fail-safe way to tell that when you have domesticated Jesus, and that way is when your ministry, when your life, when your Christian discipleship ends up dealing with minutia. All the little details, all the little stuff is the bulletin out Is it right? You do that and you end up praying as the pastor did on the way to church. Oh God, please, let something happen today that's not in the bulletin. Because we're dealing with the minutia of life. There may be no better place that I've seen this pinned than in the words of Steve Daly. Years ago, 30 years ago, or more, in Insight Magazine, he penned this piece, which is a quintessential example of dealing with the minutiae in life. At that particular time, one of the issues that was ravaging Adventist campuses across this country was whether or not to allow students to wear shorts on campus. Here's what Daly wrote. Warm weather often brings heated debates in Adventist schools over whether it is appropriate for students to wear shorts on campus. Recently, I explained my school's position to a student, but as I drove home that evening, I wondered how much attention this kind of an issue really deserves. My question was answered in a dream that night. I saw the students from the high schools, colleges, and universities of Southern California gathered together for a great student congress on the floor of the Los Angeles Coliseum. Each school was instructed to single out the one issue that was attracting the greatest attention on its campus. It was impressive to see the students of UCR erect a banner that read, Free South Africa, Down with Apartheid. UCLA raised a similar sign with the words, Stop World Hunger. Riverside Poly High School was concerned with overpopulation and pollution. The Claremont Colleges chose as their slogan, End Racist Nationalism, Join the Sanctuary Movement. Fuller Theological Seminary raised the issue of sexism in relation to women's ordination, and USC proudly proclaimed its commitment to end terrorism and the threat of nuclear war. Then all eyes seemed to focus on the Adventist schools. Slowly they elevated a gigantic banner that contained the most perplexing message of the day. It was a very simple sign inscribed with the letters S H O R T S. Shorts. There was a moment of profound silence then a pervasive buzz moved across the floor of the L.A. Coliseum. Most of the students seemed embarrassed that they didn't know what the letters stood for, assuming this was certainly an acronym. (laughs) A tremendous debate ensued as students from the various schools attempted to decode its meaning. One co-ed from USC suggested that the letters stood for the shortage of housing in opposition to rising tuition by students. But this idea was quickly dismissed. People thought it was far too parochial and insignificant in global implications to occupy attention. (laughs) Suddenly, a UCR student shouted, I've got it. These Christian students have included all the major issues facing our world today in a single acronym. How could we be so blind? SHORTS obviously stands for South Africa, hunger, overpopulation, racism, terrorism war, and sexism. A murmur of approval swept the crowd, building into thunderous applause. The roar became so deafening that it woke me from my sleep. Then a still, small voice whispered, why are the children of this world wiser in their generation than the children of light? You know you have domesticated Jesus when the most important issue is shorts. He plants a sign. When all the crowds are coming, when all the people are responding, when his popularity is at its peak, at its zenith, he plants a sign and says, If you would come after me, take up your cross. Daily. And follow me. Even at the height of popularity, Jesus refuses to be tamed. calls to mind for me the words of Philip Yancey, the writer who says, as I studied the life of Christ, he studied it for one of the books that he wrote, one impression about Jesus, says Yancey, struck me more forcefully than any other. We have tamed him. The Jesus I learned about as a child was sweet and inoffensive, the kind of person whose lap you'd want to climb on, Mr. Rogers with a beard. Indeed, Jesus did have qualities of gentleness and compassion that attracted the little children. Mr. Rogers, however, he most assuredly was not. Not even the Romans would have crucified Mr. Rogers. And so he called. My dawning awareness of that call in my own ministry happened here in this building. It happened when a fellow student of mine who was reading a little book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer introduced me to a line. It was a line he gave me that day that I have never forgotten. I have tried to get it out of my mind. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to dwell on it because I don't want to live it but it refuses to die the line was simply this when christ calls a man he bids him come and die i don't want that jesus please i want the assurance the grace the joy the peace i want the big church that is full with active ministries what are you talking about When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And yet the words were seared into my mind. It caused a dawning, an awakening desire to understand this man, Bonhoeffer, what he was all about, to read and understand what would drive someone to write a line like that. Drew me into understanding a man who left Germany as the storm clouds roiled, as the war was on the horizon, left and came to the United States, got involved in ministry here, became a part of what was happening in New York City and some of the impoverished communities. But then he said, I must go back. Friends who were in Germany said, why would you return? Don't come back. He said, if I do not come now and stand with my brothers and sisters in danger, I cannot return after it's over and help them rebuild. And so he returned. When Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a woman, he bids them come and die, take up the cross and follow me. I thought about that. Thought about that some years ago when we were traveling in Europe. We had the opportunity with a group we were helping to lead to visit a concentration camp named Sachsenhausen. I'd not been to Sachsenhausen before. I didn't know much of Sachsenhausen. In fact, it wasn't one of the larger extermination camps. Wasn't Auschwitz, Birkenau, Sobibor, Treblinka, Dachau, those names that bring dread and horror into our minds and hearts? It wasn't one of those. Our tour guide that day was a diminutive Jewish woman. For her size, she was powerful. She was a leader, and she led us into that place, led us into the gates, and began to give us a tour of Sachsenhausen. She said, This is where the prisoners stood. This is where they stood at times, hour after hour after hour for roll call. And if they dared move, they were taken right over there and they were shot there. The ovens were just over on the other side. They didn't function like they did at Auschwitz, but they burned. She took us around the camp. She described what life was like like inside those electrified barbed wire fences. No escape. And then over on the side, we came to a smaller camp, a camp within a camp. She took us inside of that, inside of the walls that were there, the barriers and the boundaries that were there. And I wondered, why would there be a camp within a camp? And then inside that camp within a camp, she took us inside of what looked like a barracks, a small concrete structure. We walked in that long, high hallway, naked light bulbs casting pools of light on the hard, cold floor. And as we walked down the hall to the left were the cells. And I began to notice that cells, different cells, had names and occasionally pictures depicting when they knew who had occupied that cell. We slowly made our way down the hallway And we came to a cell with a name and a picture I recognized. I was taken suddenly. It was an emotional moment. I hadn't realized that Martin Niemöller had been here, part of that confessing church with Bonhoeffer and others, that he had been interred here in in Sachsenhausen. And I stopped, and I looked at the cell, and I tried to picture in my mind's eye him in that cell. And I wondered. This was the Niemöller who would later write one of the most famous quotes to emerge from World War II. He who had initially gone along with what was happening in Germany, thinking it was good, but later resisted, would write those inimitable words In Germany, they came first for the trade unionists. And I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. They came for the Catholics. I didn't speak up because I was Protestant. And then they came for me. And by that time, no one was left to speak up. And I wondered, was it a cell like this one? where he penned those words. I wondered, was it a cell, maybe this cell, or one like it, where an earnest prison chaplain came one day working his way down the cells, interacting with the prisoners, and came to a cell in which Niemöller was confined, and the chaplain, looking through the bars, wide-eyed, said, Pastor Niemöller, what are you doing in prison?" To which Niemöller responded, and you, my dear chaplain, why are you not in prison? Was this the cell? It was an emotional moment. An emotional experience to stand and to think of Jesus planting the sign and saying, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to walk with me, if you're going to minister in my name, and you're thinking that it's all crowds and all joy and all excitement, read the sign. Nimola read the sign. I was coming to terms with all of that when I suddenly realized that the tour group was, was gone. So I quickly made my way down the hallway out onto the grounds thinking I can't miss the bus. I couldn't see them. I started walking fast and then kind of running around the camp had they already left. And finally up ahead I saw them. I ran toward them because I had a question I had to ask that diminutive Jewish tour guide. I got there and she was talking. I waited at her side. I had to wait a while before the moment came when finally I could ask. When she finally stopped presenting, I tugged on her sleeve, and I said, you have to tell me something. You have to explain something to me. Nemo. back in that barracks, why? He's already in Saxon House, and he's already in the camp. The electrified fences prohibit his escape. And then he's been moved inside of another camp within a camp with more fences. And then he's been moved inside a barracks, and then he's been closed in a cell. And that small woman looked up at me as though the answer were the most obvious answer in the world. And she said to me, oh, because, because he was a pastor, so he was a very dangerous man. I've been called many things. I've never been called dangerous. Dangerous. He was a dangerous man. We had to confine him in any way we could, in the most extreme ways possible, because the entire Nazi machine was afraid of him. Why? Because he was a pastor. Jesus, give me a big church. Give me a great crowd. Give me a prominent pulpit. Give me people to hear. Give me a successful ministry. And it's right there that he plants a sign. Says, you want to come after me? Take up your cross every day and follow in the blood-stained footprints of the master. Because there have been many others whose footsteps have walked to my cadence. There have been those who walked with me, Peter and James and John and so many others. There have been those who came behind them. Read Hebrews 11. People of whom the world was not worthy. People whose names will never be printed in the headlines of the world. They have walked in those footsteps. Millions, a countless throng have walked. So if you want to minister in my name, take up the cross and follow me. Let that be your ministry. The words scare me more than I can tell you. When I come in prayer before him, I want to say, please keep me safe till the moment of my death. And he says, I am good, but I am not safe. Someone sent my wife a card. A card that simply said on the face, be the kind of woman who when you get up in the morning, the devil says, oh no, she's up. (laughs) What if that were written of us as pastors? Be the kind of pastor who when they call you to that church, When you step into that pulpit, small or large, significant or insignificant, the very gates of hell tremble. And the devil says, oh no, she's here. He's preaching. And I can tell they read the sign. God of grace. We love what Jesus said. We are drawn to his gracious call and scared beyond words that he is not safe. Lord, please walk with us. Strengthen us. Encourage us. And give us your spirit that we might be dangerous to the darkness. In Jesus' name et